I'm Rachel Bovard. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everybody. Um, we have a pretty interesting setup, I think, today. We're going to start with uh, House Republicans or Republicans in general who are gearing up to what looks like potentially winning some majorities in, in 2022 with an agenda that is lacking. So we're going to spend some, Emily and I are going to spend some time talking about that. Um, and then Ben's going to talk about everybody's uh, favorite horrifying topic, which is the racial rationing of COVID treatment. You would not think this is happening in America, but it is. And then finally, we're going to, Josh is going to close us out by talking talking about uh, Novak Djokovic's, Djokovic's attempt to take on the government of Australia, uh, which I'm definitely here for. So um, with that, I will kick it over to Emily, I think is going to kick us off. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Rachel. Um, this situation uh, is really the tale of two bills, or at least two proposed bills. So news broke this week that Georgia Senator John Ossoff would is looking to introduce legislation. He's looking for a Republican co-sponsor on a bill that, according to Fox Business, would prohibit members of Congress from holding or trading individual stocks while they're in elective office. Um, it would also make it illegal for lawmakers' spouses and family members to trade stocks while in office. And it might also require lawmakers to put their financial assets in a blind trust. Um, now, today, as we're recording this, it's Tuesday, Punchbowl News broke the story that Kevin McCarthy is also considering a ban on lawmakers holding and trading stocks if Republicans take back the majority in November. But there's a key difference. Ossoff's bill is that's uh, that is real teeth. This is an issue that people have struggled to legislate and to regulate for a long time. It's a serious issue. Um, this is how a lot of politicians. Nancy Pelosi is a good example, uh, which was funny because she defended it so vocifer vociferously as a function of the free market, a necessary function of the free market. Just a couple of weeks ago, has made a lot of money trading stocks in relevant issue er areas. Well, she's in Congress. I highly recommend people check out Peter Schweitzer's book, Throw Them All Out. Um, Tim Carney has uh, covers this in uh, his books as well. So this is like a really serious problem. It absolutely influences the way members of Congress and elected officials think about these issues. It gives them an advantage over the rest of the population. They get really rich off of it. But Kevin McCarthy's proposal Actually, um, he hasn't sort of decided, according to Punchbowl, what kind of limitations there there may be in his in his bill. He might just force lawmakers to hold only professionally managed mutual funds. Another way would be to bar lawmakers from holding stocks in companies or industries their committees oversee. All right, so that's a much weaker proposal. They just have mutual funds um, or they just can't lobby in relevant areas to their committees. There's already the Stock Act of 2012, which we were told was going to have teeth and prevent this kind of thing from happening, and it didn't. My cynical theory, and I'll open this up to the group, is that Kevin McCarthy has seized on this issue because he saw the virality of Nancy Pelosi's Marie Antoinette moment and vociferously defending uh, trading as an essential function of free markets and wanted to capitalize on it. He saw that Ossoff was circulating, and not just McCarthy, but Republican leadership, uh, saw that Ossoff was circulating, seriously circulating, looking for Republican co-sponsors on a populist bill that has actual teeth that would 
actually affect the bank accounts of members of Congress. And he jumped on it to sort of neutralize the Ossoff thing and to say, listen, where everyone thinks we're going to take power next year. So we'll do this then and then we'll have control over it and it won't be the Ossoff bill. So, uh, Rachel, maybe I'll start with you because you worked in Congress when the Stock Act was passed, um, just to get your thoughts on what this says about the uh, the possibility of, of sort of populist anti-establishment legislation actually um, working and, and actually getting passed in 2022. I mean, there's nothing like an issue that exposes the self-interest of members. And I think especially now, you know, when you have so many members who are individually wealthy, because especially in the Senate in particular, you almost have to have some kind of either institutional political support, you know, dynastic support sometimes, or great wealth of your own to even get into the chamber, which sets up the situation that we have now, which is, you know, people benefiting from the knowledge that they have. And to me, this is just like, like such a black and white issue. It is indefensible, I think, to most people, not even just from a PR perspective, but just from a self-governing perspective that people should be abusing the inside knowledge they have to enrich themselves. This is the exact opposite of what the citizen legislature was supposed to be. Uh, But I think the point about Kevin McCarthy, and and I'm going to pick up on this in my segment, though, is that, again, I agree with your theory that he's just honing in on the message to damage his political opponents less to actually solve the problem. And that's where I think a lot of the failure lies. Um, And it's worth pointing out, there was a great graphic uh, shared about members of Congress uh, who really, who beat the average in stock trades. And you see Nancy Pelosi kind of at the top, but there's Republicans that are besting her. Um, I think Dan Crenshaw is the the member that's like immediately above her, you know, led by a number of Republicans that just top that list of people beating the market average again with their knowledge of what's going on in Congress, their ability to influence it. So To me, this should be a baseline threshold uh, expectation from the base. But I have there is going to be a lot of institutional pushback that may not be public, but is, is probably going on in the conference right now of members who do not want this to pass. A hundred percent. And we will never hear about it. But yeah. it is impossible <laughs> that they are not trading on insider knowledge, even casually. It's just it is unfathomable. Yeah. So I, I guess just two quick points come to mind. Um, one is just like a very simple level here. It is really unfathomable that we're having this conversation. Um, I mean, how has this not like been enacted years and years ago? And I, I vaguely remember when the Stock Act was kind of being floated around. I think it was around the time that like Boehner and Cantor were in GOP leadership, right? It was kind of, I, I, I remember that a little bit here. But I mean, look, I, I think back to when I was working at a big law firm, when I was working at Kirkland Ellis um, in Houston, Texas, you know, like one of the 10 biggest law firms in, in the country, the world, whatever the relevant metric is, you know, I was not allowed to like individually trade stocks without getting firm approval. When I was literally at a law firm because that's the nature of a law firm. You have, you represent clients, you got to make sure all that. So I basically could only invest passively, you know, in ETFs, mutual funds and things of that nature. I mean, if those rules are being applied ethically at the micro level of a law firm, then why in the name of God should U.S. congressmen and U.S. senators who are legislating on these very issues possibly be any different? So that just, it's stupefying and dumbfounding to me. Um, The fact that we're even kind of having this discussion, I think shines a spotlight exactly what Rachel said, which is just this, this perception. It's an accurate perception that the ruling class of the elites and the corridors of power inside the beltway just simply do not always have the best interests of we the people at heart and they're always see- always seeking to kind of game the system to, you know this is literally all the kind of the worst of washington dc embodied in one issue so the, the entire thing is kind of 
Uh, it's yucky. It's uh, all the edginess, I would say. It's like slimy. It doesn't feel right. The second kind of quick point I'll make here, um, there actually is a, uh, a so-called quote-unquote case for legalized insider trading. I'm sure uh, all of us have kind of heard this case be made from our libertarian friends. I, I rem remember uh, when my law professors, Todd Henderson, who's you know, a friend of mine, I mean, he was kind of a libertarian kind of corporate law professor. He has made this argument. Um, it, it's a non-frivolous um, economic and legal argument if you kind of, um, if you accept the basic premise that the stock market solely exists to maximize efficiency, right? Which is kind of this necessity, you know, this is the three cheers for capitalism kind of market fundamental view that I think Natcon kind of fundamentally rejects, but it is a non-frivolous argument. I guess one thing that I'm going to be curious to hear is whether anyone in the Republican caucus kind of has um, the intellectual honesty, not necessarily kind of the moral or the virtue, but the intellectual honesty to actually kind of forthrightly make that. You can kind of see like maybe if Ron Paul were still in Congress, maybe he could like kind of get there and kind of make that kind of fundamental argument. But I don't expect that. Um, that is basically the only kind of intellectual. I think it's wrong, but it's the only it's the intellectually honest argument for like actually insider trading. But if you don't make that argument, that's it. I mean, like this should be an open shut issue. Honestly. Yeah. So I just want to highlight that the whole ruling class issue here, there's another angle to it, which is that members of Congress exempt themselves all the time from the policies that they impose on hundreds of millions of us, all of us, essentially. We've seen, of course, there's no better sort of split screen of ruling class elites out yeah, having fun at restaurants, et cetera, while they're served by the help in masks. And this is just one other representation of that. So it is sickening that members of Congress are evidently trading within the very sectors, of course, that they are regulating. To Josh's point, I used to work in financial services, of course, the most directly linked industry to financial trades. And obviously, any trade that you would ever want to execute, you'd have to run by a compliance officer. You couldn't trade in almost anything. Uh, the notion that, of a blind trust certainly, I think, absolutely makes sense in terms of assets. No one should come into Congress poor and leave rich, period, full stop. And that happens over and over again. And I would go further, by the way. I would advocate for you can't lobby any company in your industry for X number of years. And I would have real teeth in terms of penalties for this. And of course, members of Congress are always going to try to find workarounds. They'll try to have their get their family members jobs and essentially benefit indirectly through that, et cetera. But as many barriers as can be ought to be put up. And the fact that Pelosi is so brazen to make the argument about the free market here, I think that that shows you uh, the level of animus that they have towards the American people and the notion that we have two standards of justice in this country, two standards of liberty in this country, for that matter. Anyone, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go, go for it, Rachel. I was just going to see if anyone has final thoughts. Yeah, no, I was going to try. I'm going to talk more about Kevin McCarthy. So why don't you wrap us on this segment? <laughs> no, I think everybody hit the nail on the head in a different way. I think that was fantastic because the point is that like there, there's this is an advantage over the American public. It influences the way our leaders deal uh, with the government and uh, corporate America. So it's a it's a shame, like Josh said, that we're even having this conversation. But we are. And it's likely that nothing like this ever even goes into uh, effect because privately, it'll get killed some way or another. It's just a bargaining chip, really, and, and a public relations signal. Yeah, um, the sort of black and white issue in Congress is that they will always protect their own self-interest no matter what. So <laughs> that's the one thing you can always count on. Uh, so transitioning to, to my segment about the House Republican Conference. So as I said in the intro, you know, it, 
polls at least now look like Republicans will win at least one majority in 2022 in the House. And so all eyes are sort of turning to what the agenda will be for a Republican majority and hearing from the presumptive House Republican speaker, which would be Kevin McCarthy on this issue. He gave an interview, uh, I think it was over the weekend, where he laid out some of his policy priorities. And I think I sent uh, the, the tweet that he put out, but basically stopping the flow of drugs and human trafficking on our border, making it easier to start and grow a business in America, reestablishing America's energy independence and passing a parent's bill of rights. Now, I don't think like these are bad priorities, right? But I don't think that they should be priorities in this current moment that we're living in. What I mean by that is everything that he just listed there is a baseline expectation of a marginally competent Republican party. And more than that, it has been, if you are hearing shades of you know, 2000, 2000, right? Like 2012, 2008, like these, these have been the Republican party priorities for my entire life. Somebody on Twitter pointed out to me when I said 2008 called and wants his talking points back, he was like, oh no, you mean 1986. And it's kind of true for some of these, that these have just been lingering talking points. And again, they're not bad policies. You know, energy independence is a great thing, but again, this is something that we should just expect the Republican party to do not in this current moment to run on. Where is the vision for, for, you know, we always say on this podcast for what time it is. And, you know, by that, I mean, addressing the fact that we are suffering under a like public health corp state tyranny. We're dealing with, you know, the biggest uh, multinational trillion dollar corporations uh, controlling the contours of our social discourse and market access, the rise of China, which is something we talk about here all the time. The fact that we have very precarious uh, middle-class economics, we've deindustrialized our base. We're dealing with the fallout of that from COVID. All of these things present the opportunity for a, a party to innovate, to present themselves as understanding exactly what's threatening America's middle class, because that's essentially what's going on here. I mean, you have the base, I think the Republican base, and I would say the Democratic base too, feeling threatened in ways they never have before. And they are looking for their leaders to give them a coherent vision of how they're going to respond to that. What Kevin McCarthy just put out isn't it? And again, I, it kind of comes back to this classic mistake that Republicans always make, thinking they're winning because they're leading and not winning because the other guy's imploding. And that's exactly what's happening here. And so it, it just strikes me that without a vision, I don't know how we sustain any kind of leadership role in America. And more than that, the last thing I'll say is like, did Donald Trump ever happen? Like th this agenda is if Donald Trump had never happened and all of the think pieces that probably all of us on this podcast wrote about the opportunities the Republican Party had after Trump's leadership are just being completely squandered and wasted if this is what we're taking going forward. So I throw it open to the room for your comments on where you think uh, Republicans should be going or if you agree, I don't know, with Kevin McCarthy, that we should start small. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I'll hop in. First, so we're we're recording this on Tuesday. Um, this morning, Governor DeSantis here in Florida gave his state of the state address up in Tallahassee, and I think the contrast is is notable um, between kind of what Kevin McCarthy said and kind of the agenda that. Governor DeSantis outlined this morning. I, I watched the entire speech. Hopefully by the time this podcast is released, uh, our good friend Dave Riaboy will have written an op-ed for me about it for Newsweek, but we shall see if Dave delivers on that product. Um, but um, it was a great speech. Um, he kind of hit kind of the whole litany, or not the whole litany, I don't want to you know, over-exaggerate, but he hit on a number of kind of, I guess, hotter button, more relevant issues, you might say. There was kind of, there was kind of a whole segment. Um, DeSantis had some policy kind of incentivizing police officers and law enforcement to relocate here. There was, a, there was like a lot of kind of like 
like back the blue, stand by the blue, defeat, you know, uh, defeat anarchy, defeat kind of riots and looting and 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 all. It, it, trying to paint a, obviously a stark contrast between the leadership here and what's happening out in, in California and San Francisco with the van, the you know, the vandals and the looters and all that. He had kind of a whole whole little bit about kind of big tech and kind of the imperative to, to, to kind of create like a private right of action to sue for censorship and discrimination and all that stuff. And more generally here, he was kind of getting into the fact that he, I think he used the, he used the phrase, the biomedical security state, um, which he's been wont to do to refer to kind of our two tier society of COVID and kind of this whole notion of just of a, of, to use the phrase that we use in podcast all the time, this whole notion of a ruling class between like the public health apparatus, the socio corporate tyranny of big tech and the, and the woke capital people more generally speaking. So the contrast, between, I think, the agenda that Governor Santos laid out in his State of the State address and this Kevin McCarthy, you know, Reagan, Bush, 84, whatever, talking point memo, um, it is stark. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be slightly more um, optimistic, slightly more white-pilled and say that, like, to an extent, I think some people out there in the Republican Party are learning at least some of the, of the right lessons over the past five years. It just seems that Kevin McCarthy is not one of them. And that's probably that's hardly surprising. Right. I mean, I don't think any of us necessarily view Kevin McCarthy as as the substantive future of the Republican Party or perhaps even the leadership future. It, it, it is less than obvious to me that Kevin McCarthy is a shrewd political operator and, and fully capable of leading the Republican caucus. But having that aside, um, all that to say, I think that some people are learning the right lessons. Um, and I would obviously point the listeners and viewers down here to Florida to take a look at that. So I'll jump in and I'll say briefly, I'd be really interested to know what uh, McCarthy is looking at in terms of polling going into 2022. And, and the reason that I say that is because whenever you look at a list like this, the question that always comes to my mind, the cynical question, but I think the right question is, who is this person appealing to? And then also, what is the intent behind putting out a list like this? And it's worth noting that McCarthy also said he would boot, I think, Adam Schiff uh, and Eric Swalwell off of the Intelligence Committee, uh, and that he would also kick Ilhan Omar off of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which, sure, that's great. However, he did not say that he would bar them from all committees, period, full stop. Um, so Democrats, of course, would bar Republicans, period, full stop, from all committees uh, who dare to dissent from whatever the kind of establishment orthodoxy is in Washington, D.C. Set that aside for a moment. So the questions are, what's the intent behind the agenda? What constituency is, is he appealing to? To my mind, it seems like it's probably the purple suburbanites that he assumes are going to be necessary to flip these very close moderate districts to increase whatever potential majority there may be. Whether that's true or not, I think is debatable. And again, would love to see the numbers behind it. Then it gets to the substance of the question, Set of setting aside the politics for a second. I mean, what does McCarthy believe are the greatest threats to America right now? Is it the regime of wokeism and scientism that is crushing and seeking to turn half the country into terrorists? And while those same people are also supporting communist China, so we're kind of getting assaulted from both ends, does he view it that way? And to the extent he does, like, shouldn't you be making the case to Americans that this is what time it is? here's the consequence for American life. And here's the agenda that we're going to put forth to defend you against this onslaught. And the last point I'd make is you know, Jim Banks, the chair of the Republican study committee put out a memo where he sort of talked about the idea that Republicans have been presented a golden opportunity and not something that they earned, but as a consequence of Trump to pursue a nationalist populist sort of conservatism, which could of course include any number of these points that McCarthy raised. But 
it does not have the same flavor, tone, tenor to it. And it's clear that he was not speaking to the MAGA base that's the core of the party, even if the Republican establishment doesn't like it. So I wonder if it's a short-sighted attempt to appeal to a purple minority and also maybe implicitly reflects a view that MAGA can sort of be taken for granted here. And I don't think any party should ever take for granted any part of their constituency. But I think it's very clear that they may need to make a broad overarching case to the vast majority of the Republican Party, as well as the rest of Americans as well. My take is slightly more optimistic and then slightly less optimistic in the sense that I actually did see a reflection of sort of new rights or like the the shifts in the conservative base in this in that they included the parents bill of rights um this like major culture war uh piece of uh fodder but it's more pessimistic because to me when you're if you're just going to sort of give lip service to something like that um in a larger list that clearly is not focused on what it needs to be like just sort of paying lip service with one of your bullet points to something like that when um the the problems are so much widespread there's like like literal racism being taught in schools like this is not just about parents' rights to see curricula. This is about something so much. This is like institutionalizing actual racism that people shed blood, sweat, and tears in this country to prevent from being institutionalized and to remove from our institutions. Um, so I think, you know, also when you're talking about like what the, the base is interested in, small business is the Republicans' way of saying that they're working on like uh, income inequality, wealth inequality, all of these issues that are really serious in our economy, monopolization, deindustrialization. They'll say, we removed the barriers to entrepreneurship. And hey, that's awesome. That absolutely does address inequality, wealth inequality. I shouldn't talk about income inequality like a Marxist, wealth inequality. But um, this is their way of talking about it is just to remove barriers to entry for small businesses and not to, to say, listen, maybe we need to address this on a legal level, a corporate level, and maybe some of our donors um, need, uh, we need to take a hard, a long, hard look at what Amazon is doing. We need to take a, there was, there was really none of that in this list from Kevin McCarthy. And I think if he was expecting, uh, if we would expect him to be reflective of the moment, you would see some of that in there, but it's a good reminder. You don't see that um, in, you know, the, I, I mean, again, that's something Democrats pay lip service to, um, Republicans have been worse about even paying lip service to it as this shows like you just we just went through a week where we were talking about um disaffected disenfranchised people being so upset they ransacked the capital and kevin mccarthy is tweeting about small business and entrepreneurship as the future of the party i mean i, I think kevin mccarthy has a lot of political capital right now and that's also why this is disheartening um because he wants to have it both ways right he wants to he wants to appease the base and he wants to sort of keep his establishment bona fides so uh, again slightly more optimistic in the sense that i think they're kind of reading the tea leaves but less optimistic in the sense that they're going to exploit that um on a superficial level to continue business as usual yeah, my issue with Parents' Bill of Rights, it's, it'll be like a sense of Congress. <laughs> it'll have no actual statutory effect, nor will it be enforceable in any possible way. But they'll just be like, look what we did. So, you know, kind of like the, the insider trading issue. Like we can dance around it without actually doing anything. So but with that, we'll kick it over to Ben to talk about this. I can't believe this is happening in America, but racial preferencing on COVID treatment. <laughs> 
Yeah. And when do you think this would be something that Republicans would be talking about to go back to the last segment? Um, Tucker Carlson stole a little bit of my thunder on this. But for those who have not been following, I think that the development of racial rationing of life determining, potentially life saving covid treatments is one of the creepiest and most un-American developments in the whole litany of ways in which the coronavirus has been exploited to nefarious effect. And we've talked about a lot of different ways that it's been done. Uh, first of all, obviously, we've seen the hyper politicization of our public health authorities uh, flip flopping, as we've seen to great effect on all manner of issues that used to get people banned from social media. Of course, they've used the coronavirus to ban people who dissent from social media. But this, I think, represents the apex to date of and the confluence also of the wokeism and scientism joint regime under which we've been laboring now for more than two years. I also think it's worth putting this racial uh, determining the allocation of life-saving treatments, which are in limited supply on the basis of race, flows directly from President Biden's agenda, of which on the first day he issued an executive order talking about the imperative for a whole-of-government effort to affirmatively advance equity, which is, of course, in opposition to equality, including under the law. Uh, this also, it's worth noting, there have been uh, at least one hospital which has talked about uh, a pilot pro equity program to preferentially treat people in on the basis of race. So this is part of a much broader effort and also, by the way, an effort to cordon off entire areas of medical in inquiry under the guise of inequality uh, and, and basically piety to wokeism. So putting all that context in place, it's worth ticking through briefly what these policies are. And they, they're, in, they're in places as diverse as New York, Minnesota, and Utah. So in New York, for example, the state has deemed being non-white a quote-unquote risk factor that gives COVID, certain COVID patients uh, priority. It automatically helps them meet one of the criteria for eligibility to receive new oral antiviral treatments, again, when there's limited supply. So Glenn Greenwald has written about this he says that this means that a healthy 20-year-old Asian football player or a 17-year-old African-American marathon runner from a wealthy family will be automatically deemed at heightened risk to develop serious COVID illness, making them instantly eligible for monoclonal treatments, while the white person of exactly the same age and health condition from an impoverished background would not be automatically eligible. Uh, Minnesota has a BIPOC, that is non-white status, uh, disclaimer that basically gets you priority for receiving their part of a limited allocation of monoclonal antibodies, according to the state's so-called ethical framework allocate, uh, calculation. Now, how Orwellian is that, that this is somehow ethical? Um, so Eugene Volok, to get someone who's on the libertarian side as opposed to Greenwald on the left, he says, people who lack BIPOC status would be deprioritized, that's a direct quote, precisely based on their race and ethnicity, not wealth, access to healthcare, being in a nursing home or anything else. A rich non-white patient would be given priority over a poor white patient with precisely the same age and health conditions. And then the Free Beacon notes that a black 18-year-old will be privileged over a white 64-year-old under this rubric, even though the latter, of course, are at much higher risk of severe disease. And then lastly, Utah has a non-white race or Hispanic slash Latinx ethnicity standard, which counts for two points in the state's risk factor calculation for rationing monoclonal antibodies. So it gets the same value, one's race in that calculation as diabetes, obesity, and being severely immunocompromised. 
and it's worth more than other conditions like congestive heart failure and shortness of breath. I think if Americans knew that this was happening, they would be up in arms. Uh, this is, again, maybe the eeriest development of the race, race essentialism that we've seen in the application of a, an effectively racist, anti-racist agenda in American society. And it's worth noting, again, that this comes from the top because all of these states in one way or another essentially crib from directives from either the FDA or the CDC in using this language. And of course, this is all rooted in a belief that there's systemic racism, which has put people at greater risk, et cetera. Interestingly, when it comes to a vaccination in one part, uh, because minorities have disproportionately not been vaccinated. Uh, and then also obesity, because minorities, according to certain studies, show, tend to be more obese than others. But again, vaccination and obesity ought to be the standards for care, not one's race as a proxy for somehow having all sorts of underlying health conditions. And this gets to, of course, treating people as groups on the basis of their skin color rather than treating them individually on the merits of their cases, which is, of course, how all medical decisions ought to be made. So just think that the bottom line here is that wokeism kills. It is going to kill people when it comes to the rationing of these treatments. It has killed people in cities across the country where we've seen surging crime in an anti-police agenda for two plus years. And where are Republicans on this? Like, this should be the message of this is the dystopia that we are going to live in under this regime. Do you want to live in this kind of society? Why is no one talking about that? Why is Tucker Carlson basically the only major anchor on television to talk about this? I think it's shameful. It's sickening. And it's really disturbing. And it points to how many people still evidently have no idea what time it is. So this kind of gets back to, I think, the theme that even Emily and I were talking about, which is this idea that, you know, a big talking point I hear on the right about this issue is, well, this is why we should never pass single payer health care. We should get the government out of health care because this is what they'll do. Well, I appreciate that, but they're doing it anyway. And that's where the argument fails is like, where are you guys? Right. Because this is happening in America, in states across the country. This happened with my own mom when she got COVID in New York and was pretty ill, couldn't get access to treatment because she didn't match up with the criteria of her race of was included in that criteria. Like this is insane. And yet this is happening. And it did, you know, this is again, where the Republican party has to go defend aggressively defend its base, aggressively speak out against things that just do not comport with you know what this country stands for. That's not big government. That's simply like an, an, an just a defense of human flourishing. And that's what we're missing here. So I, I yeah, look, I, I guess two things come to mind. Um, the first point I'll make, I'll just piggyback off of what Rachel said there. So look, the talking point that a lot of folks kind of in like NACON, new right, kind of working class Republican circles more broadly make um, and is we refer to kind of the emerging coalition as kind of a multi-ethnic working class coalition here. And there's there's reason to be extraordinarily bullish on that. Um, I think I, you know, we did a, a segment maybe a month or two ago about kind of the new polling from the Wall Street Journal and other outlets suggesting that, that, that the Hispanic vote is coming over to, to the GOP in droves. Um, you know, we'll see how long that lasts. Republicans are known. To, to mess this sort of thing up every now and then. But um, it's only encouraging. At, at the same time, I remember when I wrote my column basically using that kind of now like catchphrase in the title, um, our friend Saurabh Sharma kind of came to me and was like, we need to talk. And I was like, well, what do you want to talk about? And he was like, well, 
this may or may not be true, but like too many people are using this as kind of like a virtue signally way to try to say to elites, oh, don't worry about the fact that like our, our, our voter base is X percent white. So to Rachel's point here, it is important for Republicans to kind of become realistic about the fact that now and probably for the foreseeable future, the, the Republican Party is and will be a majority white party. And there is nothing wrong with that. OK, that is the most important thing is to kind of make sure that we understand that while it's great to get more Hispanic support, more black voters, Asians, whoever, the Republican Party is structurally a white majority party. And there's not there is absolutely nothing intrinsically wrong with that. The second point that I want to make here um, to kind of put my lawyer hat on for a second, where the hell are the quote unquote conservative public interest litigation law firms filing equal protection clause, 14th amendment lawsuit after equal protection clause, 14th amendment lawsuit. This stuff is, I mean, unless I'm misunderstanding what's going on here, this is flagrantly unconstitutional under existing equal protection clause doctrine. I mean, like if you are categorizing people based on race, that puts you immediately into what lawyers would refer to as quote unquote, strict scrutiny category under extant long running Supreme court, 14th amendment doctrine. This stuff should be null and gotten rid of in the court system immediately. So the fact that it has not already done so, I think speaks very ill of the rights existing quote unquote conservative public interest litigation infrastructure and how it's currently not serving conservative events. There are a lot of conversations on the right, um, and rightfully so, about what happened when we actually passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the sort of legal um, issues that created something with extremely positive ambitions um, that then opened up the door for what Josh just mentioned, which is that our legal system has been exploited to allow neo-racism to creep back in the door through things like critical race theory, which when they are taught, and we've seen the sort of di diluted versions of CRT that are um, peddled around elementary schools, it's abject racism. There's really no other form for it. It infuriates many Black and Hispanic and Asian parents. Um, just it's 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 a multi-racial uh, piece of uh, objection. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a very very good point. I remember I did a, a segment on Rising a few months ago that was kind of roundly mocked on the left, on the online left, capital O, capital L, um, that the question in the headline was, is cancel culture literally killing us? Which if you live in Brooklyn, seems funny, right? Like, look at these MAGA rubes who think cancel culture is so real, like we're all dying from it. It's a lethal threat. Well, you know what it actually is, exactly because of what Ben is talking about, is that it's seeped into our medical infrastructure. I was talking at the time about a report that Katie Herzog did for Barry White's newsletter, which I think we talked about here, where doctors were letting this affect the way they cared for patients. Um, not all research was getting done for fear of losing careers. This is a life and death issue. It is a working class issue because the people who have the most to lose are the people who cannot financially afford to speak out because they would lose their jobs. And uh, that's a it's a serious, serious problem. Um, and so, you know, the, the Republicans love to exploit it. They love to pound this drum. But I'd love to see them actually put their money where their mouth is and, and tackle the issue um, with more uh, fortitude than they have. OK, so let's um, let's end here. And I guess what is simultaneously a lighter hearted and a more heavy hearted topic at the same time, of course, which is the ongoing and still yet 
unfinished saga of Novak Djokovic versus the authoritarian biomedical tyrannical state of not some third world dictator tin pot country in sub-Saharan Africa, but Australia. Um, so to, to kind of like lay the scene here, um, I, I will assume that the audience does not have necessarily high degree of familiarity with the way that um, tennis works. Uh, so tennis has four marquee events in the year known as majors or grand slam events. The Australian Open, which is in January of every year, that's obviously winter up here. It's summer down in Australia. That's kind of the first grand slam event of the year. Novak Djokovic, um, who's the number one player in the world right now and has been one of the most dominant players in tennis for the past 15, 20 years, is the winningest player in the history of the, of the Australian Open. He has won it nine times. He is the three-time defending champion here. Um, he is from Serbia. Uh, he he kind of grew up in kind of a very blue-collar setting. Serbia was a war-torn country when he was growing up there. It's kind of it's, it's kind of a, a rags-to-riches story. Our, our friend Jordan Schachtel in a recent Substack post referred to Djokovic as kind of the people's champ for, for, for various reasons and all that he's doing. So Djokovic um, got COVID. He believes he has natural immunity. He has thus far resisted being vaccinated. So long story short, the way where we're currently at in the fight is he landed in Melbourne, uh, which is where the Australian Open takes place, after having gotten waivers from Tennis Australia, the governing body of tennis in Australia, um, to kind of land there, despite the fact that Australia has about as draconian policies with respect to the unvaccinated as any, you know, quote unquote, liberal democracy in the world possibly can have. And he didn't get in. Um, he initially was denied. He was kind of detained at a hotel um, in Melbourne where they kind of put various other um, you know, prospective illegal immigrants, people, people who don't have proper visas. A judge in their judiciary ultimately overturned the uh, border forces administrative decision and said that, that this was unnecessary, that he did indeed have a valid medical exemption. So then he was let in. It looked like we were all good to go. But the latest as of the day that we're recording this, is that the Australian Border Force, that's kind of their equivalent of, uh, you know, the Border Patrol or uh, Customs and Border Protection, whatever, is now looking again to see whether he actually allegedly lied um, on his entry form, because apparently uh, due to their current COVID protocols, you have to have been stayed in one country for the previous 14 days prior to arriving in Australian soil. And it looks like there is like a photographic a paper trail of sorts showing Djokovic being in both his native Serbia and Spain. So the, now it's back in the hands of the border force from the judge. They're going to look at this. And the possible penalty here is deportation and up to three years of being banned from re-entering the country, re-entering Australia. Again, bear in mind, he is the winningest player in the history of this country's most famous sporting event, including the three-time defending champion here. So this tournament starts on Monday. Um, tennis tournaments always start on Monday. So we'll see what happens between now and then. But it is quite literally currently in limbo. Um, it is still being decided. So I guess I'll kind of kick it up into thoughts here. I mean, there's a lot to break down about what Australia has done more specifically. It's um, it, it's really kind of harrowing stuff. Obviously, it has turned a lot of kind of erstwhile anti-woke allies, kind of like Claire Lehman at Quillette, uh, who lives in Sydney. She has um, become a, a, a an apologist for the Australian regime. I don't know how else to say it as far as kind of COVID policies. So it's kind of made a lot of people down there seemingly go haywire. So I, I kind of I'll kind of just kick it open for everyone's thoughts on this. I and mean, what do you make of Djokovic trying to kind of shine a spotlight on the Australian biomedical security state's policies. I mean, this is kind of what has to happen, right? Like how many Novak Djokovic's exist, but don't have his kind of platform to like make this point, right? I mean, not everyone's a 
brilliant tennis star, but I'm just saying like there are people being punished by this regime and he's like kind of speaking out for it, but this is like everybody's future. I think, unless this issue is addressed, unfortunately. Um, and this just speaks to the need to actually shut these public health people down. It is amazing. The amount of power that they've had. Yeah. I, I don't like to lionize athletes. Like the left loves to use athletes and actors, et cetera, to somehow lend legitimacy to their positions. But of course, taking positions that are clearly unpopular with the ruling class actually does take some courage. So like Aaron Rodgers, who, by, and by the way, I'm a huge Minnesota Vikings fan. So I loathe Aaron Rodgers in any other context. Uh, and we'll see what Emily has to say about that. Um, oh, but, I had no idea you were a Vikings fan. <laughs> well, I had to keep that below the surface, you know, lest we have a huge battle over it. Oh. Uh, although it's a one-sided battle because like, you know, we're, we're a joke right now. Um, uh, but, but Always. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, set that aside. Although we did split against the Packers this year, but all that said, Aaron Rodgers loathed him under any other context, but it takes real courage to go out there and to flout the NFL's rules, attack the journalists who have a lot of power when it comes to football, including potentially, I guess, uh, threatening his MVP bid over it. And there were rumors, uh, which I think proved false, of course, but nevertheless, which made for uh, interesting banter that he might actually threaten to sit out the Super Bowl absent changes of NFL policies, which that would, that would seriously be game changing in this. So I hate to appeal to athletes, but athletes really can move the needle and it really takes infinitely more courage to go against the public health authorities, the medical establishment or political class than it does uh, to, to, to take a knee. Um, so, you know, kudos to Djokovic on this kudos to him for also exposing Australia's uh, even more egregious biomedical security state. I mean, setting aside the insanity that we're dealing with this at a time where we know that the vaccines, as our public health authorities tell us, are basically ineffective against this variant in terms of preventing infection and transmission and et cetera. And, you know, Pfizer CEO out there talking about, well, you know, two shots uh, really doesn't provide protection for this. You really need a third, et cetera. So like against the backdrop of the science, not backing the case, and then the tyranny that we're seeing in Australia, it just makes it all the more absurd uh, and shocking and scary and disturbing that we find ourselves in this position. The last point I'll make is what's in the water with the tennis players. Cause also the women's tennis association uh, going after China over the tennis player there paying uh, I guess kudos to the tennis players out there. I'm going to read a quote from Piers Morgan. Uh, he tweeted this on January 5th. The Djokovic saga is not about whether you believe in COVID vaccines, but whether you believe famous sports stars should play by the same rules as everyone else. He has the right not to be jabbed, and Australia has the right to chuck him out for making a dodgy visa application. And I really think that's how these sort of um, elites are formulating their takeaway from a situation like that, which is, yeah, sure, you know, you you go off, you don't have to get the vaccine, it's fine, but we can sort of do we're going to do too and that's exactly the point right that like that Piers Morgan is missing that Djokovic isn't saying Australia doesn't have the right he's saying of course I mean they've done it right like they did it and it happened so whatever they wanted to do they did but the the point is that they shouldn't do that to begin with that's the point that Djokovic is making it's not that like he's, he's not trying to undermine Australia's sovereignty and be treated specially as an athlete he's saying what a lot of people on the left love to talk about all the times all the time he's invoking that this is a human 
rights issue. And the left invokes that term human rights under this ridiculous umbrella definition that um, gives LeBron license to spout off about every little thing he wants to talk about. Um, But this is actually a case where the human rights are under consideration. I mean, this is like we're talking about something very, very dramatic. Um, And I mean, without, I would say, like modern precedent. Um, And so that that's what Djokovic is doing. This is not about him having a special carve out. This is not about undermining the national sovereignty of Australia. This is about a policy, um, protesting a policy that like, I can't even believe we're talking about. And everyone, everybody except for Alex Jones 10 years ago would have said that's never going to happen. Like that, that just wouldn't fly in a country like Australia or in the Western world. Um, and so while the elites are sort of stewing in their own uh, insular bubble mentality, they're missing the, a much, much, much bigger picture. Yeah, I think we can kick it to, to final thoughts. And, and um, you know, mine is just to pick up on, on a, something Emily said, which is this notion of rights, you know, because I hear this a lot from people on the right who are like, well, businesses have the right to put in vaccine mandates and schools have the right to teach racism. And there's nothing you can do about it. And it's like, no, the classical view of rights is always that there are some intention with others. And when that is the case, conservative has conservatives have always said human flourishing wins in those cases when it's a tension between market freedom and individual freedom or things like this. And it reminds me, I read recently a piece by Aaron Wren in American Affairs. I finally got around to reading it. And I think he articulated this principle really well. He went through the state of Indiana where he lives, one of the sort of fiscally freest states in the country, you know, innumerable red state policies for business, but whose citizenry is not flourishing in the economic sense, right? Their wages aren't going up. They're seeing a lot of out-state migration, people leaving the state, a lot of low-wage workers uh, without sort of substantial benefits and not really climbing the ladder. And he's making the point that like, yes, market economic, free market economics is, is fine and good and should be a focus for conservatives and Republicans. But at the end of the day, to be an effective policymaker, and I think this ties together a lot of the segments we're talking about, you actually have to work for your citizens to deliver tangible benefits to your citizens, to work to improve their lives. This idea that people, especially in, in this modern era where people are threatened by these you know, large and impersonal forces over which they have no control in a globalized economy, it is incumbent upon the legislator to address what's actually uh, affecting its, its citizens. And I think this is a lesson for state policymakers. And you're seeing people like Ron DeSantis rise in popularity because he gets this and, you know, other like Kevin McCarthy, who clearly doesn't in this moment. And this, I think, is going to be the dividing line that separates effective Republican politicians from those who just continue sort of this like blase, passive nothingness of the past 30 years. I'm sort of disturbed by Rachel's insufficient level (laughs) of uh, appetite, insufficient appetite for occupational licensing reform. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what I just got from all of that has Indiana. <laughs> what will save us is hair braiding. 
it's, yeah, has Indiana considered relooking their <laughs> occupational licensing laws? Um, and, and by the way, occupational licensing laws are absolutely uh, Fine. way yes. they're over the top. It's absolutely something that uh, can contribute to flourishing. And I think what we're sort of doing, like two ships in the night, passing each other like two ships in the night, is that the um, I, I think the anti-populist right or the establishment right and the libertarian right miss that there are people uh, on the new right that don't dispute that, that love occupational licensing reform and that believe deeply in it. Rachel worked for Rand Paul. Um, Rand Paul himself is Rand Paul. Uh, there are and I love him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so the this is like, and, and I think there are some people on the new right who actually don't believe in in sort of the the uh importance of some of those issues and i think maybe uh we have superficial conversations that use like latch on to some of these symbols and this is something that i worry about where, where people on both sides of this important internecine debate latch on to these symbols in a way that's not constructive or helpful um because they paper over like where we could actually be talking and what we actually all agree on um which is you know that free markets can un leash prosperity like nothing else but also there's a national interest also there is um you know we're, we're in this like hyper modern uh context where um these oligarchical uh people and companies are trying to control where we worship and all that good stuff so i, I wish this debate were sort of more constructive or at least we could I wish we could at least all come to the table in good faith I think a lot of people on the new right have and have been sort of dismissed um, and I think that happens a little bit in the other direction as well but to Rachel's point um, it's sort of disappointing sometimes that we can't at least all like open our eyes and be like we actually are at the same starting point here um, because some people refuse to uh, reprioritize, if that makes sense. They, they're still prioritizing some of these reflexive conservative instincts. And um, it's not that people don't agree with that. It's that their priorities have shifted. And I think for good reason, as we talk about here every single week. So when I was talking earlier about kind of the failure of quote unquote, like conservative public interest litigation outfits to properly challenge these horrific equal protection clause violating um, COVID rationing policies that Ben mentioned, I, I really had in mind like occupational licensing reform, like zealots. And there are a lot of them out there. I mean, people, you know, places like R Street, Institute for Justice, Cato, the entire kind of libertarian leaning public interest litigation wing of the legal conservative movement is overly obsessed with these extremely nerdy issues. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a girl who I'm sure we're all familiar with on Twitter named Shoshana Weissman, who works at R Street, who I think is, um, shall we say, a little obsessed with this issue. And it's in very, in, in numerous of my kind of like my like right wing lawyer group chats, this is literally like, like a running joke is like, it's like how like woefully out of touch and like not paying attention to the imperative of the hour that issue is. So I think Rachel's like right, right to flag it. Emily's also right that it, that a lot of these draws, um, probably are not ultimately good, but it's just a, it's just a lack of priorities, honestly. Um, the, the point that I want to make in final thoughts is slightly, is slightly different, though. Um, I'll kind of just tie in two of the other segments together here. Um, so I, I guess we, we tweeted out so it's public. So I had the great pleasure of being in Tallahassee last Thursday for kind of a private dinner um, and kind of like cigar smoking session, flap a bear term with, with Governor DeSantis in Tallahassee. It was a great little group. Um, Dave Rubin, Lisa Booth, Dave Riaboy, John Cardillo, Jordan Schachtel, uh, Carol Markowitz. It, it, we had a great group there. And the contents of the discussion were entirely off the record, so I shouldn't talk about that. 
But what I will say in kind of just summarizing, and this is nothing that isn't public already, is that the governor is laser focused um, on the biomedical security state. And he is laser focused on preventing the deplorables from being subjugated by the public health apparatus in general. And, that all, and all that entails, whether it's monoclonal, whether it's mandates, whether it's vaccination itself. Um, he is looking at Florida. We have a, we have a new surgeon general who the governor is very fond of, who um, certainly gets it uh, on these issues. I would encourage you guys to follow him on Twitter. He's he's a fun follow. Um, and if you kind of just look at that and you tie it into what's happening with Djokovic down in Australia, it kind of really just emphasized that like the biomedical security state and, and the way that that kind of interacts with kind of socio-corporate tyranny, that, that is the defining issue of our time. Okay. Like that, right. At least domestically speaking, I mean, we, we can make a pitch that internationally speaking that, you know, China is the issue of our time, but domestically speaking, the biomedical security state and the way that interacts with kind of the big tech oligarchs and, 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 and socio-corporate tyranny more generally to create this kind of two-tiered society where oligarchs and the ruling class can, can use these various means to kind of subjugate people at their will. That is the issue of our time. January 6th is a very convenient hook for that, as Ben has written about at great length. So I guess what we're talking about, like if if we on the right understand what time it is, I think that is the basic way of framing the question in order to ultimately answer it. But um, Ben, I'll kick it over to you on that note, because obviously, you know, January 6th just happened. That's the perfect kind of hook for this kind of two-tier society. Yeah, I won't make the same argument that I've been making for a year now and I, and I guess uh, almost a week about how January 6th would be used as the catalyzing event uh, exploited to portray half the country as domestic terrorists and then use that to crack down on that half of the country using every lever of power. And maybe next week's episode, we'll talk about some of the testimony that happened here, a kind of remarkable testimony in the Senate Judiciary Committee where FBI and DOJ officials were questioned with respect to the investigative and prosecutorial vigor and rigor around uh, January 6th. Set all that aside, I think it's a, it's a clear contrast that we see and one that ought to be held up by every single normal, non-progressive patriotic American of what's happening in Florida and the stand that Djokovic is making versus what we see in the racial allocation of COVID treatments. And I think the, the one of the questions for those who understand what time it is, but it should not be a rhetorical question. This should be a question that's posed rhetorically, but also that is exposed because I do think that there are answers to it is if governments can allocate treatments on the basis of race, when race has nothing to do with one's health, what else can government dictate on the basis of race? And that is a defining question. And that should be the question that every single Republican puts to every American. Every single traditional, patriotic, normal American themselves is considering. That points to the stakes of the issues that we're dealing with and how central the advent of the biomedical security state is to the ruling class's agenda to crush their political foes. So I think that really ought to be one of the seminal questions in 2022, 2024 and beyond, because the woke movement, even when it gets defeated politically or beyond, will never stop. They are in a perpetual culture war. And whenever we actually stick our heads up and fight back, of course, they say we're fomenting a culture war because they project, project and project, as of course, we're seeing with every day being an insurrection over voting rights. So I don't want to go off tangent, but I think that question, if they can allocate life determining care on the basis of race, what else can they dictate on the basis of race should be a defining question put to all the wokest throughout this country. All right. Well, with that 
exciting wrap up. <laughs> We've wrapped another good week. Uh, so on behalf of Ben, Emily, and Josh, I'm Rachel Bovard, and we will see you on the next NatCon Squad.